Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Professor David H. Walker. He's in the Department of Pathology at the Carmage and Martha Walls uh, Distinguished University Chair in Tropical Diseases. That's another designation of his. He's also Executive Director, uh, University of Texas MB Center for Biodefense and Emerging Infectious Disease. Um, we're going to talk about uh, immune mechanisms of uh, various parasites. So, David, thank you for coming. No, good, good talk to you. Always like to talk about these things. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, what got you interested in in uh, parasites? It's a, it's a lot of people, really maybe it's unusual. Yeah. So, parasite is a very general term. It's something that uh, gives it on or in something and causes harm to it. But when people vernacular use it, they usually talk about worms and protozoa. These are actually bacteria. Rickettsia, Ehrlichia, and Orientia are bacteria that can only survive by living inside the host cell. And they alternate between two different hosts. A vector, which is an arthropod like a tick, mite, mouse, flea, uh, and, and a, a reservoir host or an accidental host. So, so like Ehrlichia chafiensis lives in deer as its reservoir host. Uh, and humans are accidentally infected and it causes a disease in us. So these are, uh, in a broad general sense, parasites, but not what most people mean when they say parasite. Well, people call viruses parasites, um, but in their traditional parasite world, so there's worms, there's bacteria. What other kinds of forms do parasites take? So when people who are parasitologists will be talking about uh, different kinds of worms, trematodes, nematodes, cestodes, and uh, protozoa, which are single-celled uh, organisms, but they have a nucleus. So they're really eukaryotes, and where bacteria are prokaryotes, they have no nucleus. So their nuclear material and proteins are mixed together in cytoplasm. So you're, you're focused on the, um, the parasites that are bacteria, actually. That's right. What... Um how have uh, people tested that these bacteria can't survive outside of a human host, for instance? Well, everybody who comes in ill with it and they draw a blood culture and they send it to the laboratory, put it in a bottle or on uh, agar, get negative results. Nothing grows, even if the blood is full of the organism. And you can only isolate them by putting them into a host cell. So you can use cell culture like they do for viruses or you could use an experimental animal. And some of the earliest breakthroughs uh, were inoculating embryonated eggs so they could grow in the cells of the embryo of the chicken egg. And that was a pretty clever thing to do back in the day when we didn't have uh, safety hoods and didn't have um, antibiotics. And so that uh, the things that enable cell culture to be done effectively couldn't be done. Uh, back when they uh, 
dreamed up the idea of, of inoculating the material into an embryonated egg. Has anyone um, used light microscopy to put a, um, a cell and uh, a bacteria in culture and watch it infect and see the, me- the mechanism of infection? So it's been done by electron microscopy. I've done that by electron microscopy. You just take pictures and see the different stages of attachment, invasion, and some of these actually induce the host cell to do things that it wants the host cell to do, like take it in and then escape from the phagosome. Uh, Rickettsia and Orientia escape from the phagosome. The Ehrlichia and Anaplasma, they stay inside the the endosome modify it to where they won't get killed in there by lysosomes and um, do lots of other things to manipulate the host defense to to suppress the host cell's ability to get rid of it and to preserve this place as a place for them to live through their life cycle. So what do you think happens in culture in the absence of a host cell? I mean, it sounds like the bacteria is mobile. It moves around and positions itself near the cell, and then, like you said, induces maybe endocytosis or phagocytosis. But um, none, none of these are none of these bacteria are, are are motile outside of the cell. Really, some of them have have means of making the host cell move them around. For example, rickettsia, the spotted fever group, can stimulate the host cell to polymerize filamentous acts and actin at one hole. It will move it from one side of the cell to the other, and they it to into the adjacent cell, so it can spread from cell to cell to cell. So um, the reason why I ask about light microscopy versus electron microscopy is, you know, perhaps you could watch what happens while the cell and the bacteria are alive, where they're introduced in proximity to each other, you know? That's been done. There there were some pictures taken by the Russians where they really did time-lapse photography and showed pictures of these cells of the bacteria motoring around inside the cell. Um, the steps of sticking to the surface of the host cell, adhesion, stimulation of entry, uh, there are lots of ways to study that. And light microscopy, which is one of my favorite too. I'm a, I'm a practicing MD pathologist. So looking in the microscope is something I love to do. The first person who discovered rickettsia was a pathologist from Chicago named Howard Ricketts, after whom they named the this genus of bacteria, which uh, actually killed him. He died at a young age uh, being infected in the laboratory. Um, so he he isolated the first one by inoculating guinea pigs. So the cells in a guinea pig could maintain it. And he was a microscopist and looked very carefully and he saw them. He, he, he drew pictures of them in his lab notebooks. Um, it was a long time before people really figured out what they were. He would pass them through filters that would retain bacteria and they wouldn't go through. So he knew that they had to be either a bacterium or a protozoan. But, they, they, you know, at that time, the concept of a virus didn't exist. Somebody said virus, they just meant some, some sort of living thing that could replicate itself. Yeah, that would have included bacteria. Lots, lots of things fit under the category of the word virus back at the turn of the 20th century when uh, Ricketts was doing this work out in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana. So it's a, um, it's a long story. Some of it has to do with really understanding um, where words come from and where concepts come from. Mm. <clears throat> so um, 
I guess through uh, just fluid dynamics, the rickettsia, like you said, is non-motile. It'll it'll pass by a cell in close enough proximity where what it will it will bind or what's the initial contact yes. with the cell look like? Sure, it's got it's got some ligands and that react specifically with certain host receptors, and a lot of these are being identified. And they actually have usually one of these bacteria will have more than one of its protein ligands, and there will be more than one receptor of the cell. It's got backup. Even though these things have tiny genomes, they've undergone reductive evolution to where their genome is like a quarter of some other bacteria. So they actually use fewer genes uh, and manipulate the host cell to do what they need to do and yet maintain backup systems. So if, if some, one receptor is not available, maybe there are a couple others that will. And once they get inside, you know, they polymerize that and they move around. They depends on which ones you're talking about. And they're, and they're the Orientia anaplasma, Ehrlichia anaplasma, Orientia, and Rickettsia all belong in the same order, Rickettsiales. Uh, but they've really got major differences among them, such as whether they have lipopolysaccharide in the cell wall or not, um, what their proteins are. It's a, um, it's a complex group of, of, of bacteria that are very difficult to study because you, you can't study them just on their own unless you're going to just do pure biochemistry because they're not, not alive and not growing by replicating unless they're inside a host cell. Oh, so the thinking is that they're just simply not alive unless they're in a host cell, or are they... Yeah, they, they, they're like, going to die. They will die. They've right, right. they got to get into a host cell. How long um, is it estimated that they can live without a host cell? Well, people have done some experiments uh, trying to figure out how, how they can keep them alive long enough to preserve them, to, keep, to use them for research. And... Um, Different organisms have different degrees of, of fragility and uh, there's decaying of their viability that begins immediately. But there'll be some life still, if maintained at a very cool temperature, um, 24 hours later, they won't all be dead. But they, they will not, they're, they're really all gonna die. It's just a matter of how long it takes them to, to die. What, what form are they inside of, uh, these come from a tick, this family of uh, bacteria? So the spotted fever rickettsia do. So there are, two, there are two main pathogenic groups of rickettsia, typhus group and spotted fever group. And uh, so the typhus group, which causes, you know, typhus was probably had more effect than any other disease on the world, on European history between 1500 and 1900. Whichever army got the louse transmitted typhus first, lost the war. I mean, it was really not a matter of how good the generals were, it's how, when they ran into typhus. And of course, nobody even knew back then what a rickettsia was, nor that the louse was a vector. So there's some insects that transmit the typhus group, fleas for rickettsia typhi, murine typhus, and lice for epidemic typhus. In the spotted fever group, they're mostly transmitted by ticks. And uh, Ehrlichia, they're transmitted by ticks and anaplasma are transmitted by ticks. But orientia, this uh, is, is probably the most important of these disease uh, genera now. Orientia suzugamushi causes scrub typhus, and it, uh, it's transmitted by chiggers, larval mites. 
So you've got to be, in, 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 we need entomologists to help us understand these because while I'm a pathologist and study them carefully in, in experimental animals and I've studied autopsies and biopsies of people, um, most of their life is, some of them is spent out there in that arthropod, as you said, like the tick. Well, so step by step, what does it look like? Um, if I'm in a tick, Am I inside the tick cells? And then at the point where there's the blood meal, do they come out of the cells and then enter into the human and then seek to enter, re-enter a new cell? Like Exactly. So they're, they're, they're secreted in the saliva of the tick. They're in the salivary glands, and they're secreted in the saliva of the tick, which goes into the d- dermis of the skin of the person. And then they're taken up in the skin of the person by phagocytic cells like macrophages and dendritic cells. They enter the lymphatic vessels, and they spread via the lymphatic vessels to the draining lymph node, and from there into the bloodstream. Then they go all over the body in the bloodstream, and the cells they infect are mostly the endothelial cells, which are the cells that line the blood vessels all over the body of all sizes, arteries, arterioles, capillaries, venules, veins, but most of, most of the circulation of the body is microcirculation, capillaries, venules, and arterioles. And they grow in the, inside the cells lining these, the endothelium. That's what the organism is that cause Rocky Mountain spotted fever, for example, do. Well, I do have one, one more question here, um, and then we'll move on to, you know, once to the human host. So at the point, so these, these bacteria are literally inside the cells of a tick, for instance, or a louse, and then at the point where you said they're in the salivary gland, are they inside cells and they come out of the cells and then they go into the saliva in a free form, or are salivary cells going into, you know, let's say the person and the the bacteria is inside them, and then once inside the person, does it burst out of those cells and then travel and then go into our cells? Like, at what point is the bacteria not inside a cell? And for how long? When does that happen? Some electron micrograph pictures suggest that they come out of the salivary cells into the saliva free and then go in the, in the tick saliva into the little hema, blood pool that the tick is sucking blood out of and are taken up by the hosts of macrophages and dendritic cells. But you have to realize it's, it, it's not... These are not all the same. I'm, I'm telling you, for one, how it fit the spotted fever or catch you. I, I know. I know. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And and it's the uh, well, you mentioned uh, the louse. Actually, the louse sheds it in its feces and it gets scratched into the into the host. And is is it? It would be an extracellular organism at that point. Yeah, it's just interesting because I'm wondering what kind of signaling occurs to tell the bacteria, all right, exit the current cell you're in and then look for a new host, you know, a new cell to go into. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, uh, hmm. the, I think we might be giving them more of, anthrop- maybe anthropomorphizing what's going on there because these things, they're not smart. They're just highly evolved to be able to do these things. And so I'm not sure what, what, I'm not sure that there, I'm sure there are signals. For example, if a tick is out in nature for months or years at a time, it's an ambient temperature. 
But when it gets on to a host, it, it gets the body, the skin temperature of the host is, becomes the temperature of the, of, the, of the tick. And as the tick begins to imbibe blood, uh, this blood uh, nutrients may have some messages in them so, so that the rickettsia change. And in fact, um, if you grind up a tick from nature and inoculate a guinea pig, guinea pig doesn't get sick. But if you take a, a tick that's been feeding on a guinea pig for a while, like a couple of days, and grind it up and inject and inject a guinea pig, if it's a virulent rickettsia, rickettsia, it'll kill the guinea pig. So it's there's some type of reactivation that occurs, and part of it's part of it's the temperature because you can just take that tick from nature and stick it into an incubator at 37 degrees centigrade, leave it there for a couple of days, and they will have acquired some of the virulence, uh, not as much as if it had taken a blood meal, but enough to cause disease. Hmm. Um. So what part of the uh you know, the bacteria's life cycle are you focused on? What are you trying to figure out in particular? So I've been working with Rickettsia for 47 years and I've done a lot of different things with them. At this point, I'm 77 years old and am uh, focusing down on trying to accomplish something practical in life. And there are many scientists who are out there studying um, signal transduction, how these Rickettsia with small Proteins can use the same protein to do many different things. They're multifunctional. They call them moonlighting proteins. Um, there are people that are doing incredibly sophisticated work. My personal interest at this point is vaccine and, and diagnostics development. They're really you know, having a practical impact on uh, some of these diseases. And uh, people have been trying to do that for decades. One I'm working on very hard is... Uh, Scrub typhus caused by Orientia suchigamushia. They've been, it killed, it, it affected 18,000 troops in Asia and the islands of the Pacific in World War II. It was a major cause of febrile undifferentiated illness in the Vietnam War. And they've worked, people have tried to develop vaccines for eight decades and don't have one, don't have one, even a candidate. And that's, so that's, that's one of my goals is to, actually make the steps that are going to make a vaccine happen for scrub typhus. The other, the other thing that I'm working, very focused on, on doing, and I'm working on a, with a very good colleague, Dr. Jerry McBride, uh, and he's, he's, he's the, uh, the genius behind that one, on a vaccine for ehrlichiosis, vaccines for ehrlichiosis. There are several ehrlichioses for um, and, and the diagnostics, we're, we've got some really good ideas and some good preliminary data because the problem is these diseases are di- diagnosed by detection of antibodies the person makes against the organism. And the antibodies don't appear until late, too late to be useful, really. Say for Rocky Mountain spotted fever, you need to treat the patient in the first days, five days of onset of illness. And uh, they don't make antibodies until day seven or later. And uh, so they, we really need new tests that will identify and make the diagnosis at the time when you need to make the decision of what therapeutic drug to give. And people with fever, they always get antibiotics, but actually there's only one that works against uh, Ehrlichia, and that's uh, Ehrlichia and 
brachetia, and that's doxycycline. There is some evidence that uh, there may be an, another antibiotic that you could use against derivicia, but uh, the ones that are actually used that work are doxycycline. And do patients have got sepsis, which is a febrile illness with lots of cl severe clinical manifestations. They get treated with all sorts of antibiotics that don't do anything to rickettsia. So what's, um, in terms of um, a vaccine, I know it depends on the bacteria. Um, would you try to stop initial entry into our cells? Um, would you try to stop once they're inside of our cells, uh, you know, proliferation or, uh, you know, would, would an immunotherapy work? I mean, what's, what's been the thinking and where, uh, where does science seem to be uh, making headway to treat some of these uh, bacterial diseases? So for rickettsia, it's the outer membrane proteins that are used in entry to the host cell. And uh, they call, we call them outer membrane proteins A and B, which uh, typhus group don't, does not have outer membrane protein A. The genes, the gene names that uh, encode those proteins have got very different S surface cell antigen 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Um, so that's, that's the main idea that people have had for rickettsia as far as a subunit vaccine where you just use one protein. The idea of a live attenuated vaccine just means attenuating it, finding some gene that the organism has to have to make you sick or to grow fast enough to make you sick and, uh, and, and eliminating it. And there, these organisms have been very difficult to manipulate genetically. As you can imagine, you go and knock out a gene, and you try to get this organism to go into a cell and grow, and you've knocked out the gene that it uses to get into the cell. You're not going to not going to have it's not going it's not going to be easy uh, to accomplish. For the for scrub typhus, it's, it's fascinating. People have looked at all sorts of proteins, and um, the major surface protein is a 56 a 56 protein, and it's uh, plays a role in entry, adhesion to the cell and entry. And antibodies to it prevent the illness. So you, you can immunize a mouse with antibodies to the P56 of a certain strain of rickettsia, and that mouse will be protected. The problem is there are many, many different strains of Orientia, and they have different 57, 56 kilodalton proteins. They just, they're... Um, and so if you're immune to one, you're only immune to one. And the, next, and the other ones you're exposed to, you will get no protection at all. So oh, wow. how, to, how, to, how to handle this? And the United States Navy worked on this for a long time uh, they, because of the Vietnam War and the Marines out there and the legacy of the severe effects it had in, in World War II. And uh, they, they haven't, they didn't, succeed in getting a vaccine. Right now, there's the, uh, <clears throat> the work that's going on that looks uh, as if they're making some headway is in Korea. And they've taken these same cell surface antigens, so-called SCAs, which are, and they found there are several of them, and you have to find one that's conserved among the different strains so that vaccination will really work. And they found right. one called SCA-A, which is which has uh, some promise. And they've also tried to take the conserved part of the 56 kilodalton protein and make a vaccine out of it. 
and they've had some success. My idea is uh, something very different from that, and I'm uh, going to try to get the money to do it. And got an application that went in. It's being judged this week. It uh, might, might, might get me started, and on the other hand, it might not get funded. How much uh, variation is there in uh, strains of bacteria for a given infection? Like, has, you know, has uh, someone been, you know, have you looked at the cells of someone that's been infected and, you know, have we observed many different types of rickettsia, for instance, or ehrlichia, or, you know, I know, again, it depends on what, what's infected. It depends, on where you, really. depends on where you want to draw the line between one species and another. That, that's an area of, of contention, in which I have one point of view and some other people have other points of view. We have lots of names of rickettsia, and they are more closely related to one another than bacteria that have the same name of a single species in other genera. But we do we have many different variations, especially in spotted fever group rickettsia, whether you call them species, different species or different strains. And they are transmitted by different ticks and have different distributions in the world and cause different severity of disease. But for a given strain, they don't vary. They just stay the same. So, I mean, that, it's not going to change. In fact, that's true of the Orantiosuchigamushi. In fact, there's so many different ones out there. That this particular strain does not, does not change. Let me tell you the, the difference between that. Anaplasma has a mechanism by which it just changes its, its surface all the time. It, it just... By the time the immune response recognizes one set of genes that's got on its surface, it changed them to another one. So these they've got different strategies for uh, survival. So uh, if I'm bitten by a tick and I get spotted fever or one of these other you know conditions, am I gonna is it gonna be a big variation of the bacteria that are attacking my cells or yeah you know, I know like you said some of them are very good at evading my immune system, but is there gonna be on a genetic level a lot of variation? in the, uh, the bacteria that have been, you know, that, that the one, the one you, the one you encounter is not going to change. It's going to stay the same, but there are okay. others that you could encounter that are different. Well, I guess for a given infection, that's good because it's a little bit less hard to combat it. If, if I was infected by a bacteria that you know, had many different strains and variations, it would probably be really difficult to get rid of it because if I, you know, preferentially kill one, the other strains would rise to prominence and keep infecting. Yeah, but you start with one strain, and either it changes or it doesn't. And the rickettsia don't, but the anaplasma do. I mean, there, there are plenty of examples of bacteria that persist by changing their, their antigens. But there are others that don't do that at all. And rickettsia and ehrlichia and orientia do not. Okay. Got it. Well, very good, David. Um, we're just about out of time. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Well, uh, I published about 360 articles. <laughs> Go out and read nice, them. Nice. It's, uh, they're, you know, book chapters and reviews, and uh, they're all they're all out there in the public public uh, publications. Okay. okay. Well, very good. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it very much. It's very interesting stuff. And you're more than welcome. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.